and Dave. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Excited to jump into Daniel again. We are in a series we're calling Above All. And so if you would turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. We've got a lot to do today, so let's jump uh, right in. If you grabbed one of those blue Bibles in the back, we'll be here in a few minutes on page 433. Page 433. So like a great Broadway play, the book of Daniel is organized into two acts. In Acts 1, uh, we are given six scenes or narratives demonstrating that God is uh, the king above all kings, and he's able to preserve his people who are in exile. That's the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 6. Unusually, in the book of Daniel, it switches genres half the way through. So in Act 2, which is chapters 7 through 12, which will start next week, Daniel gives us a series of symbol-laden visions that to us are very strange, but they are designed to reassure God's people of God's victory over all there is to come. We'll begin that next week. The final scene in Acts 1 is without a doubt the most famous story in the book, and it's one of the top three, four, five most well-known stories in the entire Bible. If you grew up in church, you may have some memory of being taught Daniel and the lion's den with uh, your childhood Sunday school classes. If you think back to those days, the few of us who would have had that experience, you may remember seeing pictures of the scene where Daniel is pictured as a, a, a boy or a teenager. And yet, the story didn't actually work out that way at all. He was an old man by this point in time. One of the challenges Daniel, his friends, and eventually all the exiles of Israel who were taken into Babylon had to work out was how to live in Babylon without becoming of Babylon. They had to live in Babylon without becoming Babylonians. They had to discern ways to live in a society without becoming of that society. Now that's no small task then, nor is it a small task today. Because Christians today face no less hostility than we would have if we had lived in Babylonia. Daniel chapter 6 this morning will give us tremendous insight as we consider what it looks like to live today as faithful Christians in a society that doesn't want our belief. Interestingly, what Daniel provides us by way of example, other biblical passages give us by way of explicit commandment, such as those found in Jeremiah. One of the most confusing things about the Old Testament is that we often don't know where to place things because the book isn't organized largely chronologically. And so one of the things that's helpful is to look up a timeline so you can see which books were written concurrent with other books. Jeremiah is about the same time period as the book of Daniel. The first 28 chapters of the book are dark and solemn. If you are a depressive person and you want some help with that depressiveness, to become even more depressive. Those are 28 great chapters for you. But in chapter 29, 
things began to change dramatically. Since Jeremiah was one of the few not carted off to Babylon, but remaining in Jerusalem, at this point, when he had a message to send to his fellow Jews living in Babylon, he had to do so by way of writing a letter and sending it via a courier. The letter's purpose was to instruct God's people on how to live in Babylon until God brought them back. And I bring this up today because I think it's instructive to help us understand some really surprising things about what Daniel does. Now before we read it, remember what the Babylonians had done to the Israelites. For all practical purposes, their country and their towns no longer existed. They had been wiped off the map. Their cities ransacked, their possessions stolen, their lives, locations, families ripped apart, the temple destroyed, and all but the most poor and worthless carted off by their captors in Babylon. And Babylon was not a place that would have been easy to remain faithful to God. The pressure upon them in everyday life would have been tremendous. And so to these people, Jeremiah wrote and said, here's what God commands you to do. Let me read you the opening paragraph in the letter. This is Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And here's what he commanded them. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Give wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may be bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, if you're hearing this rightly, then the only thing keeping your jaw from hitting the floor is your mask. These are, these are shocking commandments. Imagine the person who's done you the most harm. The one who in sin committed evil against you. And imagine God commanded you to spend your life devoted to their good. That's what this letter says. As tempting as it might have been, these Jews were not to sabotage, undermine, or subdue Babylon. They also were not to create a Jewish monastery, if you will, outside of town where they could sort of avoid any rubbing of shoulders with the filthy Babylonians. They also weren't to sit and sulk of the horrors of living in Babylon, constantly complaining. Instead, Jeremiah told them, settle in. Anticipate you're going to be there a while. They were to live in the city, setting up their lives as resident aliens. In Babylon, but not of Babylon. And maybe most shocking of all, they're to seek the well-being of the city and pray that God would bless it. Now why? Well, contrary to the perception sometimes people have, God and His Word 
is immensely practical. I mean, just look at the end of verse 7 that we had on the screen. The reason for these commandments was simply, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. In other words, if things go well for Babylon, then life will be smoother for you too. If God had written a commandment like that to us today, it might sound something like this. Christians, while you wait to go to heaven, make the best of life in Tempe. Don't assimilate completely with those who don't know God. But don't disengage and withdraw either. Don't board yourself in your home, constantly complaining on Twitter and your YouTube channel about what wretched people the Babylonians are or the Tempians. Build an apartment. Get a business. Send your kids to school. Seek the benefit of those around you who hate God. And pray for the good of your captors. These are God's commands to us. But what do those commandments actually look like in practice? Well, enter Daniel 6. Daniel shows us an example of living a life like that. So look with me, if you would, at Daniel chapter 6. I'll begin reading in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, these were something like what we would call governors, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Church, this opening paragraph of chapter 6 provides us with tremendous instruction for how to live life in exile. It is the example of what Jeremiah recorded God commanding. As Darius was setting up his new administration, news of a, a prominent, faithful, highly competent Jew reached his ears. That's Daniel. So Darius set him up in his own administration. Maybe the reason for that is he wasn't a Mede, he wasn't a Persian, he wasn't a Babylonian. Maybe he would get free from the entanglements of all the things people wanted and he would be faithful. Now if Daniel rightly models what Jeremiah commanded, then what should we draw from his life? Well, allow me to point out three specific exhortations flowing from Daniel's life. The point here is to instruct us on how we ought to live in Tempe 
while we wait for Christ to return. Number one, Daniel models for us that we are to work hard. Daniel's first boss was Nebuchadnezzar. He would not have been an easy boss to have. He had more bosses and ultimately ended up serving a new king in a new kingdom entirely. And yet, for decades, he excelled again and again and again. I think there's no way that would have happened if Daniel was lazy or resentful or dishonest. He must have genuinely wanted the good of these kings. Church, as you live in the city without becoming a man or woman of the city, work hard. Work hard even for bosses you disagree with about very important things. Seek their good. Seek the good above you because as you work hard for that boss, you're ultimately working hard for your Lord. A second thing Daniel models for us is that we're to be faithful. When jealousy began to sprout up against Daniel, notice that no accusation could be made about him. He had committed no tax evasion. There was no string of sexual misconduct. There was no abuse of power. The things that were seemed to not be able to go more than two or three weeks without hearing about leaders today. None of those could be said about Daniel. As a person reliant on God, Daniel was above reproach. Now that doesn't mean he was sinless, but it means that there was nothing so scandalous about him that if it was brought out into the light, that he would somehow be embarrassed and be unable to serve any longer. He'd been faithful at home and faithful at work. And Daniel understood he didn't have to be a pastor to live a life of exemplary service. He just sought to be faithful where God planted him. I hope you'll do the same. Faithfulness is a rare thing in our own day. Friends, faithfulness is more important than skill. It's more important than your GPA. It's more important than who you interned for or what former boss you can list on your resume as a reference. Character matters. And only those who are reliant on God can have any hope of being faithful in such a way that you will be above reproach. Just think back a couple of months ago when Governor Andrew Cuomo was the hero in American TV. His daily coronavirus briefings brought millions of people around the country to listen as he sought to lead. And now, call after call after call for his resignation Why? Well, because he's been accused of not being faithful. Faithfulness matters. If you fudge on faithfulness, it will be your downfall. Now third, and finally, Daniel shows us 
the importance that we must obey God. Verse 5 ends by drawing attention to Daniel's obedience. Yes, he was a hard worker. Yes, he was faithful at all things. But ultimately, what set Daniel apart was that his fundamental loyalties lie not with Babylon nor with Medo-Persia. His ultimate concern was to love God by obeying God's commands. Did you know that that's what loving God means? It doesn't mean, first of all, that you get warm fuzzies when you think about it. It means that the design and disposition of your heart is obedience. Christian, how do we live in exile? Well, we work hard for the good of the city. Even a city full of things about which we disagree. We live faithfully and we obey God's commands. There is, of course, a time to disobey the state, but never merely for personal gain and never because our preferences are somehow being offended. No, we disobey the state only if obeying the state would literally require we disobey God. That's it. In every other situation, we live by the law of the land precisely because we are bound by the law of heaven. Now, what happened in Daniel's situation as he sought to live faithfully to God? Well, let me summarize the next paragraph for you. Essentially what happened is these guys that had become jealous of him go to the king and they say, King, uh, let me try to convince you of something. It seems to us that, um, if I could maybe add a few details here, um, you've, you've had a great first 70 days in office, but how about we really make the last 30 tremendous so that your first 100 days will just be amazing. So why don't you write a law that says, no one can pray to anybody except you, because you, after all, are the great king. Now, what do you think a leader would do if his advisors were advising him that? Well, uh, he fell prey to his own lust for power and accolade. And he signed that law. And so that meant anybody who prayed to anybody else for the next 30 days, except to King Darius, would be met with execution by way of being thrown to lions. The story reminds us that uh, we ought to pray for those who are in positions of influence. Why is it so often that they go badly? Well, maybe one of the reasons is that their, their advisors will often give them bad advice. They will poke and prod into their own issues, seeking to use those people to get their own means. That's what happened to Darius. So here's the conflict then in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's been diligent for decades, but now the law of his God and the law of the land conflict. Which one would Daniel give allegiance to? Will Daniel omit a lifelong habit of daily prayer out of self-protection? Or will he obey God, putting himself in harm's way? 
Beloved, if you seek to live faithfully in Tempe today, whether that's in your dorm room or your marriage, your workplace, or among friends at the dinner table, you will face moments of conflict. You will face moments when your inaction will be faction of disobedience. Will you follow God's laws or people's whims? Well, let's see what Daniel did. Look at verse 10, would you? When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had the windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he'd done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king or to the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Consider with me just two things from these verses. The nature of Daniel's obedience and the nature of the opposition against him. First, the the nature of obedience. And maybe the most important sentence I will give you this morning is this. Exiles must say no to public demands against their faith. But they must also say yes to private piety essential to Christian faith. The two have to go together. What's done in public must be the same as what's done in private. Daniel could have decided, you see, that For the next 30 days, he'd just pray in his heart. I mean, after all, who would ever know? You can't tell walking down the street if somebody's praying or not. And I hope you never realize the driver next to you is praying. Praying can be done without regard for anyone around in a very private way. But Daniel recognized a direct conflict between God's laws and The king's laws. That could not be ignored. And so he sought to courageously obey God. It didn't matter that this was an issue of personal piety. He had to obey. I find it fascinating that Daniel didn't seek to protest the injustice of Darius' law. He didn't give himself to making his voice heard. He didn't post endless debates and diatribes on how stupid Darius was. Sometimes the quote-unquote Christians making the loudest complaints about what the state is asking of us come off like people who may not practice personal piety at all. They exhibit little of love for Christ in public, which may in fact mean They have a lack of prayer, fellowship, 
Bible study, fasting, confession of sin in private. Church, this does nothing for the good of the city, or the beauty of the gospel, or the faithfulness of the church. Don't be like that. Let us be known for a winsome, friendly, Jesus-like holiness. Let us be known primarily by what we are for, not what we're against. Now consider not only the, the, op, the, the nature of his obedience, but the nature of the opposition against him. And if you look closely, Daniel is praying alone in his own home. And the only way anyone ever knew that he was praying is that they drove to his street, got out at his house, spied in through the window so that they could see him praying there. Daniel's not standing on the steps of the palace protesting outside the pagan temples. He's not picketing with signs of the idolatry of the king. He's not collecting signatures seeking to have the law overturned. No, he's alone, privately praying in his own home. Friends, that is how opposition against faith works. It's never really about the public good. It's always about seeking to eradicate those who don't conform, forcing them to affirm or be shunned and canceled. They designed a situation to trap Daniel, and that is what they got. There are so many examples of similar things happening in America today. And I fear that most churches are not producing people who react rightly, but rather wrongly. We would do far better to put our heads down and obey our Lord than we get by our endless complaining and fear-mongering. People have always been opposed to Christian exiles. They've always been entangled in a complex web of motives. I think the church would do better to not bemoan, quote, Babylonians, but instead to seek their good, trusting that God will have the final word. Even if we live the rest of our lives with Christianity becoming more and more and more and more and more costly, that is but a tiny blink in the joy we will have for all eternity. Now, read on with me, would you? Look at verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, I mean, these dudes are relentless, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king demanded, commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. 
a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. It is well attested in both the Bible and in literature outside the Bible that if a king in the Medo-Persian Empire signed a law, there was no one who could change it. It was done. You may remember in the story of Esther that that's a key feature in how things worked out and why it seems so uh, guaranteed that all the Jews would die by hands of genocide. But so important was Daniel's work and above reproach Daniel's character that Darius was put in a tailspin trying to save him. Christian, you might consider if your boss or your teacher or your non-Christian spouse or parents could say that about you. Has your character been such toward them and your disposition so set on increasing their plight in life, irrespective of how they've treated you, that they would feel an acute loss if you went away. If not, Daniel's example calls us to repent today and to resolve that in Christ we would seek to live differently. Now, quite different from the American system of law and justice, the punishment against Daniel had to be exacted on the day of the crime. Before the sun went down, Darius had to send Daniel into the pit. Suffice it to say, Daniel this time is probably somewhere between 85 and 90 years old. And so he's got his walker headed to the lions. There is absolutely no chance he could fend them off. Nevertheless, Darius hoped that God would somehow save him. So the question we should be asking at this point, friends, is could he? Is God able to do that? Because that just seems absolutely impossible. The answer begins to unfold in verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king rose and went in haste to the den of lions. He came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths. They've not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I've done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be brought up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted his God. Now do something weird. All right? Pretend this, like, we're, we're not in all the formality of a Sunday morning. And just imagine being there. This would have been the most humorous of sights. The king 
is standing before this huge rock, yelling through the rock to what everyone else around him would have thought, this guy is off his rocker. Of course, Daniel's not going to say anything. You may know the story, but it's still being written. Darius had a question. And that question was rooted in a certain kind of God. If you look carefully at verse 20, you'll notice two very important details. Darius referred to God as the living God. And he asked a question that hopefully, if you've been with us over the last five weeks, you're beginning to see as the drumbeat of Act 1. He asked if God was able to deliver Daniel. Both these details are very significant. For God to be the living God, church, doesn't mean only God's alive rather than dead. There's there's more significance to it than that. You see, for God to be the living God means that God's involved. He's present. He, He didn't create the world, sort of spin it on its axis and then Say, peace out, I'm going to the beach. Now, the the living God, the significance of that is that God is ever involved in the affairs of his people. Darius knew God to be a living God. Church, this is our great hope in day-to-day life. As you think about the next week of your life, you may face difficulties that you have not anticipated. Or, you may be living with ones that are already present. If neither one of those things are true for you, then hold on, give yourself a week or two, it'll change. Difficulties are normal. And so as we face uh, a surprising opposition, hardship, sickness, suffering, what is it that gets us up and keeps us going? Is it not? That we have a living God? This is our hope. So Darius knew that about God. But his question was, is this living God able to deliver Daniel? If you grew up hearing this story, you knew the answer. But Darius didn't. The book of Daniel has been asking this question over and over and over and over. By this point, it's like, come on, we, we got it. But yet we don't. Because every new trial brings a new opportunity to be unfaithful, to doubt, to question. In chapter 2, see? Living God. In chapter 2, God was able to reveal mysteries. In chapter 3, God was able to deliver from the fiery furnace and the fire. In chapter 4, God was able to humble the proud. In chapter 6, God is most certainly able to rescue Daniel from the lion's den. And yet Darius did not yet know that. Brothers and sisters, as we remain faithful to our living God, let us trust that God is always able to deliver us. That's what Daniel chapter 6 is about. 
as we remain faithful to God in exile until Christ returns. May we remain ever confident that God is able to deliver us. Daniel was tossed to certain death, and yet God rescued him. Now, what's the upshot of this story? What was the result in the day? Well, look at the end of the story, chapter 6, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is a living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never end. His dominion shall never be destroyed. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Friends, the outcome of God's gracious rescue of Daniel from the lion's den is that Darius declared to the whole world who God is. When when Daniel was deciding, do I pray or do I not pray, he never could have known that that would be the outcome. Church, whether it is resisting the internal temptation to avoid conflict and appease the world, or the external pressure to conform to the patterns of life from those around us who don't follow God, we will never know what's at stake in the moment. And it is always more than we could have imagined. Our spirit-empowered courage to obey is of massive importance. Our call remains the same as Daniel's. Obey God. And if that ever comes in direct conflict with the commandment of man, God wins. And to do so in such a way, this is the tricky part, that even in our disobedience to the world's demands, our motive is that we would seek that they would flourish. Sometimes God will deliver us in this life. Sometimes that deliverance will only come in the next. We see that in a small way in this story. Because the same God who, who shut the mouths of the lions could have gone and shut the eyes of the accusers so that they never would have seen Daniel in the first place disobey. But God so often saves us in our trials, not from our trials. But irrespective of how he chooses to do that, now or in our death and ultimate deliverance, Later, we must obey. We began this morning by reading a portion of that letter that Jeremiah famously wrote to Jews in exile. I'd love to read you another section of it. It'll be on the screens. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Uh, These 
words that your grandma might have told you when you failed that college class weren't about that college class. They're about the Israelites returning back to Jerusalem. Then you will call on me and come and pray for me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declared the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places that I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Remember in the story that Daniel, when he prayed, the text says he prayed three times a day facing toward Jerusalem. Now, if you are uh, Muslim, then you're familiar with this idea of praying toward something. Christians are unfamiliar with that. So what's up with, with that? Well, this text in Jeremiah gives us the answer. See, for, for us, this would be praying this direction, east. So, hello. So, Daniel, three times a day, probably because of a psalm that talks about going to God morning, afternoon, and night. Daniel turns himself at home, praying east toward Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Well, he did that because of the longing to return home. The promises Jeremiah wrote express the reason for that posture in praying. Praying toward Jerusalem was symbolic of the longing to get back home. Now, long before Daniel prayed, many, many, many generations before that, when Solomon very first dedicated the temple, the place where God would dwell among his people, Solomon himself prayed that if God's people were ever taken into exile for disobedience, that wherever they were taken, they would pray toward Jerusalem, asking God to send them back. Daniel is simply being obedient to the heart of that prayer. He's postured himself in humility, longing for God to do a new work and take him home. He had been doing this for at least six decades. That's a lot of prayers. Today, though, we need not look toward Jerusalem as we pray because God's presence is no longer uniquely found there. But we do look somewhere as we pray. We look to heaven. We look to heaven because our great hope is not to return to Jerusalem, but for our King to return here. Friends, the final great act of God in human history will be the second coming of King Jesus. And it is on that day that every hardship, every tear, and every act of opposition will come to an end. We look to that day as we pray. All your good, right, godly desires will be met that day. And far more important, you will see your Savior face to face. Though we are unsure of the day of His return, we are ever confident that He will come. You see, church, we look there praying with great confidence 
Because we can be sure that Jesus will come again, not out of some weird, wishful thinking, but because He came the first time. Daniel 6 is a wonderful example of something theologians call typology. Now, give me three minutes or so, and we'll wrap this up. Typology is a word you can toss around and impress people. They won't have any idea what you're talking about, but they'll pretend they do. Uh, Typology is when a person, event, pattern, or object in the Old Testament, is preloaded with truth that would only come to be fully seen in the New Testament. You can think of Old Testament types as shadows of what we would only see fully and finally when Jesus Christ came. And these types are one of the great reasons that I believe the Bible is actually written by God and is unlike every other book because they're just so prevalent and they're embedded in actual events in history that it is statistically impossible they could have just happened. And so when you read your Old Testament, look for them. And the key is to be watching for, is this person or event or thing or pattern something that directly in the text points us forward to Jesus Christ? Are you with me? Daniel 6 is one of the great examples of this in the Old Testament. Let me point out a few things that this shows us. Like Daniel, Jesus was found blameless and above reproach, but it didn't matter. Like Daniel, Jesus' only offense was that he obeyed God in all things. Like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused and brought before a ruler who shockingly sought unsuccessfully for his release. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die and placed in a sealed pit so that no one could change the outcome. Like Daniel, Jesus was thrown to the lions. In Jesus' case, this was the ultimate lion, the devil who who roars like a lion and in his death, Jesus' death, thought the ultimate battle had been won. And like Daniel, Jesus was miraculously rescued. But the key to typology is that what is in the Old Testament in miniature must be then in the New Testament in a far greater way. Are you still with me? All right? So, in other words, what's the tiny thing in the Old Testament has to be even more true in the New Testament. And certainly that was the case with Daniel and Jesus. Because you see, unlike Daniel, Jesus died. Unlike Daniel, Jesus became guilty. Unlike Daniel, Jesus took our blame in order that we could become blameless. Unlike Daniel, Jesus had no angel to comfort him or to keep him safe. Unlike Daniel, Jesus faced the wrath of God and the horrendous spiritual and physical torture all alone. 
Jesus, you see, is the greater Daniel. And so, while we definitely look to Daniel as an example, and he's a great one, we glance there, and then we gaze at Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has saved us. In Jesus, the question Darius asked has been answered forever. Is God able to rescue? The answer to that is found on a bloody cross in the first century outside the city of Jerusalem. God is able. God has. To Jesus, we will bow in praise at his return. Until then, may we courageously be living our lives for the living God, even when people around us are hostile. Daniel was faithful. Will we be? Will you be? Time will tell. Father, please use your word now to bring both conviction and comfort. We pray this in Jesus' name.